is Emery. You're listening to another episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. And this one coming up, this episode that you're listening to right now, I think it just might be my favorite episode we've recorded thus far. An absolutely fascinating discussion with two academic powerhouses, Kendra Albert and Elizabeth Ann Watkins. Joe will introduce Kendra and Elizabeth in just a moment, but Kendra is a technology lawyer, a fellow at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, and together with Elizabeth, they have recently published and have presented on their work on the gig economy and the digital security divide. On today's episode, we'll talk about that work, the issue of cybersecurity educational disparity in the gig economy, and what can be done about it. But we also talk about their experiences in the Ivy Leagues, how an arts education carries over to law school, and the social and cultural elements of cybersecurity awareness. As always, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, and consider reaching out to us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind. We are always looking for feedback and new guests and topics for the show. So, I hope you enjoy this upcoming discussion as much as I did, with Joe Jerome, Kendra Albert, and Elizabeth Ann Watkins. Welcome to Tech Policy Grind. This is Joe alongside Emery, and this week we are joined by two awesome folks who are doing some fascinating work uh, at the intersection of society and technology. Kendra Albert uh, teaches at the Cyber Law Clinic at Harvard Law School and is a fellow here at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. And Elizabeth Ann Watkins is pursuing her PhD in communications at Columbia, studying how employees in different fields speak with each other about cybersecurity, privacy, and encryption. So, and, and together, they sort of came together to co-author a paper and a project entitled Gig Work and the Digital Security Divide. So thank you both very much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So we tend to start off the show by asking folks what they grind for, what they're passionate about in technology policy. But because we have two people today, uh, I, I was hoping that you could both sort of talk to us about your different and varied and really interesting educational backgrounds and how you both came together to work on this really interesting research. Um, sure. So this is Kendra and I can I can start. Um, so my way into tech policy was actually relatively unusual. Um, my undergraduate degree uh, is like a I double, I concentrated in lighting design for theater um, and in history. Um, and so then sort of really got into thinking about how the law handled um, scientific evidence, which actually turned out to translate really well into thinking about how the law handles technology, because they're both sort of slightly technical fields where an expert saying one thing within the sort of language of science or the language of technology can be interpreted totally differently by a, by a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, you know, I sort of started working at the, as an intern at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and then sort of worked my way to, um, to working as a research associate and then ended up going to law school to do technology law practice. Um, but I'll let Elizabeth tell the story of actually how we first met each other and sort of came to collaborate. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Kendra. Um, I, I tell the story a lot at cocktail parties, so I've got it pretty polished by now. <laughs> Excellent. The best kind of podcast uh, stories. Once upon a time, um, I was really keen to be uh, an assistant um, in research to Jonathan Zittrain up at the Berkman Klein Center. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I gave myself like an extra hour and a half to find the building because it was in the law school and the other side of Cambridge. And I finally arrived and I was just, I was quivering. I was so nervous. I'd watched so many of this guy's lectures, and I was just so enamored with everything he and the Berkman were doing. And um, and in this fit of, of quakery, um, I uh, was pulled into the office, and I met one of the friendliest and kindest people I've ever met. Uh, that's where Kendra was. 
And, um, and they said, Hey, so Jonathan's not quite here yet. So how about we get to know each other? Hmm. And we had a really cool conversation that went into a lot of tangents that I absolutely did not expect to get into. Um, and then, uh, Jonathan the- theater lighting, what the, or the tangents. Yeah, there was theater lighting. I had, uh, done a lot of experimental, uh, video artwork in my undergrad studying art at UC Irvine and I finished a master's in art culture and technology at MIT and so we started talking a lot about arts and electronic art and digital art and installation art um so it turns out I did not get the job um but uh Kendra reached out and said hey so you didn't get the job but would you like a friend instead (laughs) (laughs) that's the best call yeah (laughs) Second nice best consolation prize. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I like to think that, it, you know, that sort of worked out for the best. I think we after that, we went and uh, ate some fried pickles at Texas Roadhouse. And then our friendship <laughs> and essential research collaboration was forever secured. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think both Elizabeth and I sort of bonded over being folks with like arts backgrounds who are really interested in like art and sort of humanities and like culture um, who sort of found ourselves doing more kind of like tech tech policy related or sort of like uh, Elizabeth was doing business, more business school sort of stuff, but uh, like sort of out uh, maybe a little bit either out of our depth or, you know, with other not necessarily having tons of other folks who like share that particular uh, background. Um, so, you know, although the interview did not result in a job offer, it did result in a, the friendship of, I think now we're at like five years or so. So doing, doing pretty okay. That's excellent. (laughs) I think this is probably the most academic, uh, focused episode of Tech Policy Grind yet. If it's not, then it's certainly, I think our guests are the the most, from the most prestigious school so far, at least. Uh, Yeah, dual Ivy Leaguers. Dual (laughs) Ivy Leaguers. I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to work an Ivy League pun into the episode title. I'll keep you updated on that. Uh, Kendra, you attended Harvard Law. Um, Elizabeth, before Columbia, you actually were at uh, MIT for the School of Architecture, correct? Correct, yeah. So, you know, just because we have two Ivy Leaguers on the show today, I've got to ask, you know, do you have any insights into the Ivy League educational experience? And then... I guess the, the follow-up question, what, what appeals to you about the academic life and did you find it at the Ivy Leagues? Oh, that's an, it's an interesting, hard question. I will say, um, so I, often I like to deploy my drama degree strategically when I want to make people think more, feel more comfortable, right? They're <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, yes, I, like, I work on encryption stuff, but don't worry, my undergraduate degree is in drama. Um, <laughs> it's just like, you know, maybe actually not awesome, but that's a thing I do. But I will say one, you know, one sort of funny thing about my experience particularly has been that like I went to a conservatory theater undergrad program. So it was like all theater all the time. Um, And actually the first year bared a remarkable resemblance to Harvard Law School, at least Hmm. for me. It was classes with all the same people. There were like often ridiculous expectations that (laughs) rooted in some sort of historical historical norm. Uh, You did a little bit of everything. Um, You didn't really get to specialize. Um, and so I think, you know, what was sort of funny about it is I like sort of came out of my one year at Harvard being like the best preparation for law school is clearly a conservatory drama program. Like this is just this is just the way to go. Right. Um, however, I think that for a lot of reasons that may not be most people's paths in. Um, so I will just say that I do think like the, you know, often school names and institutions sort of gain their own mystique. But I think like 
if you've ever, you know, if you've really worked hard at any institution, like on something you're passionate about and maybe not always very good at, then those skills transfer well independent of the institution you end up at. So I have two follow-up questions. First for Kendra, you, you sort of addressed this earlier, but what was there a particular moment or catalyst that made you shift from a, a pretty creative background into a, a life of the law? And then um, I guess, Elizabeth, where are you in getting your PhD? In my mind, I always think PhDs take eight years or forever. Um, so how is that going on for you? Um, yeah, eight years feels like forever. Um, I'm, uh, I'm in my third year now. And uh, I think a lot of what Kendra is saying about kind of the transportability of, uh, of an arts background has really rung true for me. Um, in my art education in my undergrad, I had a professor who pulled me aside and said, Elizabeth, um, I need to talk to you about something. Uh, I can tell that you really don't care about art. Wow. A bit taken aback. And he said, wait, wait, let me finish. It's not that you don't care about art, but you care more about what art can do. And the way art thinking can help you to see the in-between and interstitial spaces between topics that don't seem to be connected on the surface. Mm. And so I've carried that with me forward into thinking about uh, cybersecurity. And the way that I kind of first came in contact with cybersecurity was um, I was at the MIT School of Architecture and I was really interested in YouTube and the way that YouTube provided like a platform of expression for a lot of different kinds of people to provide their own um, kind of outlook and recordings of events that had happened to them. Like all these different kinds of histories could come together on one platform. And after grad school, I, I, I had no idea what to do. I said, wait, what do you mean I have to get a job now? <laughs> <laughs> the jobs are the worst. Uh, <laughs> right. Jobs. And so, um, much of my surprise. The only thing worse than a job is not having a job. It turns out, yeah, yeah, that, that became apparent pretty fast. It's a wow, not having a job is somehow worse than getting a job. Um, and much to my surprise, uh, I ended up talking to someone who said, Oh, you wrote your thesis at MIT about like how people talk to each other in digital spaces. And I said, Yeah. And they said, Well, that sounds a lot like marketing. You should come to Harvard Business School and write cases about marketing. Hmm. And I said, sounds just ridiculous enough to be, you know <laughs> so i ended up doing this, this is wacky uh so i ended up doing that for a couple years but then i thought okay clearly i am, don't want to spend the rest of my life talking about commercials and how to get people to buy more stuff but there's something about the way that people are communicating through these interfaces that i want to keep pursuing and so I ended up going into a PhD because that was the only place that could give me enough time to waste thinking about things that I had no conclusions or ideas about yet. And um, I ended up interviewing for a job on a cybersecurity research team looking at how journalists practiced information security. Hmm. And I got to the interview and I said, listen, um, in preparation for this interview last night, I tried to install PGP on my laptop. And I <laughs> Not easy. I failed miserably about five times in a row, so you shouldn't hire me. I shouldn't have this job. <laughs> I think that's a perfect indication of how the communication between users on cybersecurity issues uh, is important to study, right? PGP that, shows the case. 
you must have spoken to my boss because that's exactly what she said. Do you have a preferred? Do you have a preferred VPN? Uh, I do not. I do not have a. <laughs> People ask me like, how how do I encrypt? What is? And I said, I don't. I'm not really a solutions person. I'm more of a. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so on I that issue, that... wait. I've got to ask a follow up yeah. question on that because I, I think that that might segue into uh, the answer to this question. What do you find most frustrating about academia that you wish that you knew earlier? Um. Well, I mean, I'm I'm a proud naval gazer. Um, mm. I'm a I'm a caring member of the naval gazing club. Um, <laughs> so I I mean, I'm a big fan of academia. I really have fallen in love with the room and space that people are allowed to um, to give to their work. Um, I think one thing that has really surprised me and kind of comes back around to my interest in these interstitial spaces is um, just how siloed academia is. Mm. I really felt. I really thought coming into it that um, while I'm interested in like how people um, communicate like, about technology ideas, is there a way that I could combine studies of like human computer interaction with communication with the way that like people do like collaborative and creative work in their workplaces? And everyone said that doesn't exist. You have to choose one of those. So I think I now understand how you get to being interested in different facets of the gig, account, uh, gig economy. Let's bounce back to Kendra. I'd like to sort of understand your path through all of this and whether this is – and also, as an aside, what you're teaching as part of a cyber law clinic at Harvard because that sort of sounds like something I would have loved to have done in law school. Um, sure. So I think – um, what I'm teaching is actually in many ways very, very different uh, than my research interests. Um, so I actually teach uh, uh, law students how to practice technology law. And that mm -hmm. means everything from how to write emails to the client, to how to do an intake, um, to how to, you know, reorient your meeting when someone goes down a rabbit hole they shouldn't have. Do you offer um, CLEs? Uh, not yet, but, you know, like, hey, if, if anyone <laughs> wants to pay me to write an email, uh, to do a CLE on writing email. I am like, that is what I do most of my days. Um, so it's actually a little bit of a strange situation. I mean, part of the job as a supervising attorney, you know, is actually to sometimes give the most interesting parts of your project to your students. Like hmm. I had someone tell me that if I like, if you're, if you feel like all of the work you're doing is like the highest stakes, most important part of the case of, of or of your, of your client matter, then you're actually kind of doing it wrong because like the goal is to give the students those experiences. And actually that works really well for me because, um, you know, I like working on a lot of this stuff um, and I like doing the research and often I have sort of background knowledge or like, I'm like, you probably want to start somewhere like here. But I also just really enjoy listening to students discover the stuff for the first time and get to understand like tech policy or tech law. You know, the first time a student walks in and has read an opposition comment in a regulatory proceeding and it's just like, I really dislike the other side. Like that was just like not cool. You know, there, there's something, maybe it's a little bit Grinch-like, but my heart swells a couple of sizes, right? <laughs> to be like, you can get really invested in these really technical, uh, really nitty gritty issues. Um, and sort of, it's actually really funny because the sort of genesis for some of this gig work stuff is very different. Um, it has to do more with sort of, uh, you know, I, I guess like for the lack of a better term, um, uh, my side hustle than, uh, than actually my job. Um, which is to say, I think like the moment I can like sort of trace back at least some of this work to, uh, actually has to do with pretty much pre very specifically with some of the stuff Elizabeth does 
in that I once uh, co-wrote a call, like a an individual uh, like article for Wired, um, and they uh, decided they were going to pay me, which is very kind of them. And so they asked for me to send them a uh, a W nine, um, and out of like you know knowing my digital security fundamentals, uh, I was like, well, I don't really want to send my yeah. SSN. <laughs> over unencrypted email do you have some other way i can get this to you and the editor was kind of like uh this is wired oh. magazine right <laughs> yeah and i mean i think they've since gotten better so i don't want to cast this okay wired, right um but i ended up uh calling the editor and reading my ssn into her voicemail because i was just like i don't like i don't know how to do this better is that right? like, better that i don't know I, like um <laughs> My theory was at least that'll get deleted and it's not sitting in like someone's inbox labeled W9. But like, again, right. Yeah. Like, so, and what I felt in that moment was this sort of sense of kind of powerlessness that like, if I wanted this paycheck and I didn't want to piss off this editor, right. Like, you know, being like, I'm holding out for signal is a good way to not get paid. Right. right. Um, and so I actually think that that, you know, that was really a moment where I sort of was confronting the economic reality of making security choices um, which is something that's really, like, really at the center of some of this work around the gig economy. It's just this question of when it's your livelihood on the line, mm -hmm. what kinds of choices can you make, right? And that's a lot. So, you know, Elizabeth and I started talking about um, some work I was doing on digital security for lawyers. And I think I was just like, yeah, lawyers are interesting. But, like, I really want to talk about this experience about the economy and about mm -hmm. gig workers. Um, and Elizabeth was like, okay, cool. I think I, I might be misremembering. So Elizabeth, if that doesn't sound like your memory of what happens, like happened, feel free to jump in. Um, but it was, it was that kind of, that kind of moment of being like, I get to, I'm right in right now I'm choosing between getting paid and like having a security practice that I was actually comfortable with how I'm handling my data. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, uh, and that was sort of, I think, the moment in which I was like, there's really a rich vein to be discussed here of how those two problems interact. So I think that's a perfect transition point to, to get to the meat of this podcast, which is your work. Um, I, I think, as you sort of made clear, larger and growing percentages of, of Americans are doing some type of gig work. Um, you know, I think the, the statistic that gets thrown around a lot is that most of the employment growth in the, in the economy over the last decade has occurred in this space. Um, so, you know, I, I, I tend to be Mr. Doom and Gloom generally, but I'd like to be optimistic. But I guess this is your opportunity, both of you, to explain the problem and get me scared about what's going on with security <laughs> in the gig economy. So, you know, a lot of how um, we think about digital security and how digital security information is like propagated has to do with sort of like standardized workplaces. Like, you know, we, I think often we sort of think of individuals as kind of atomistic, right? Like they're sort of, it's like, ah, I'm just a human being making choices. Um, but, you know, lots of those decisions are like that one I was making with that, with that editor, right? They're influenced by all kinds of economic factors. Um, and so what's interesting about the gig economy is that um, gig economy companies have some, or gig economy platforms have some characteristics that are sort of a little different than how other parts of the economy work, right? And one of them is that the actual workers are sort of actually looped into this kind of like broader group. They're part of this broader group that we might call users. So rather than some sort of, um, you know, like some sort of, rather than HR, um, you know, if you're an Uber driver, 
it's actually customer service that's kind of at the other end if you pick up the phone and try to call Uber. Wow. And the relationships between these workers and gig economy companies are pretty different. I saw that in a slide that you prepared for this, or on a talk that you gave on this. There's uh, some concentric circles describing the models <laughs> of you know workers and employees and customers. And I thought it was actually really interesting the way that you described that really in the gig economy, the line between workers and customers isn't as clear. And essentially, they're all just, you know, quote unquote, users that are essentially uh, negotiating on the same level against their employer. Is that essentially what you're talking about here? Yeah, exactly. So and the the and that's kind of a product of the economy, like economies of scale. But it also is, makes the sort of gig platforms a little different than how we might think of like traditional outsourcing, where even if you're outsourcing like particular parts of your company to other countries or other states or particular uh, other smaller companies, um, you're not necessarily considering, like those are still people who are working for you in some way and your interactions with them are mediated. And I'll let Elizabeth talk a little bit about some what, you know, what the sort of existing research in this space um, and what her research on the Panama Papers um, sort of taught us about how that relationship is going to change digital security. You, you did research on the Panama Papers? Yeah, this is excellent. I went, I'm pulling out the popcorn. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I was really lucky in that uh, my program is housed at the uh, Columbia Journalism School. And so we actually have a few professors in the school who are members of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists that uh, were the ones who broke the Panama Papers. And so we had really great access to the group and that we were able to get in and interview and survey um, a majority of the reporters that were involved in the project and all of the technologists. Wow. Well, and, so, and I also wonder if we should address in case people have forgotten exactly what the Panama Papers were. Oh, yeah. So the Panama Papers were, um, were a, a leak that um, of 2.5 terabytes of information about um, politicians and uh, people in governments uh, all over the world. Um, that have led to the publication of uh, a lot of stories about various governments, um, about corruption and scandals and money laundering and money movements that have actually led uh, not only to the resignations of several uh, heads of state, but journalists have been killed as a result of their participation with this project. Mm -hmm. And so um, something that we were really engaged by was how successful they were in protecting their information. They were dedicated completely to um, the protection of all of this data. And when you think about how big this leak was, I mean, the Snowden leak was only 60 gigs of information, and the Panama Papers is 2.5 terabytes. And so they, they had a lot of data, and they had 400 journalists uh, working in, I think, 60 different organizations all over the planet. And so we thought... Um, this is a huge coordination project that they did. This is a huge project management undertaking. What led to their success? So they had no breaches, no hacks, and no leaks of their own. How is it that they were able to do this? And um, something that has really been informed by my research with journalists um, in how they handle information security is um, kind of a, a big readjustment in how I think about security and the role of the user in security. Because, I mean, I'm, I don't have a technical background. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. I was trained as an artist. And so I always felt that when I failed, like in that first interview, when I came in and said, listen, I tried to install PGP and I failed, there was very much a, a thought of I failed. 
I couldn't do this. I wasn't smart enough to do it. I don't know why I couldn't. I guess I'm just bad at this kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good and, perspective. I mean, it's a sad perspective, but I think it's accurate. And it turns out that it's it's really pervasive. We did a survey with users um, to ask them about their feelings about their experiences and trying to secure their own information and their own lives online. And people give us really emotional accounts. They say that they feel vulnerable, they feel helpless, they feel powerless. And um, in looking at, um, in talking to journalists and seeing just how many of them just weren't able to um, to put secure solutions into their workflows in, um, in like pre-Panama Papers work. We talk a lot to journalists at several other institutions. And they all told us, look, I have a job to do. I have to talk to my sources. My sources have to give me information. My job is clicking on insecure links. I can't always go through these solutions that security analysts tell me I'm supposed to do. And that's when I realized, okay, failure is so systemic to these infrastructures that it's not the user's fault. We need better solutions built into our systems and our structures. Hmm. And so I carry that perspective into looking at how um, these journals with the Panama Papers were so successful in preventing leaks and the cultural and the social and psychological work that they put in to, uh, to protecting each other and to reinforcing with each other that they were performing a social good and a cultural good when they all decided to invest in learning two-factor authentication, where they all decided together that they were all going to encrypt everything all the time. These were, first of all, technical solutions, yes, but they were coupled with social awareness, an awareness that these are solutions that have to take place within our lives, between our colleagues and with our friends. So what's the status quo within the gig economy? And when we talk about gig economy, which platforms in particular are you concerned about or did you look at? Um, so it's actually that uh, Elizabeth left me a perfect opening to talk about this because like her work on the Panama Papers shows how important these like social and cultural elements are and how important this sort of idea of like trust is. And really the gig economy is in some ways the inverse of that. Certainly like there is worker organizing in the gig economy, you know, workers come together to share tips or, uh, you know, share uh, information. But, you know, generally speaking, gig economy platforms don't provide opportunities for workers to organize or gain those social connections that often are so key in other kinds of organizations. Um, And so the particular platforms we looked at in the sort of course of this research were, Uber, Lyft, uh, and Instacart, um, primarily, um, as well as spending some time on Grubhub and Handy, um, with an eye towards t- picking wor- place, uh, organizations that had different, slightly different models um, that were of different sizes and that used, like, that talk about and think about their workers in slightly different ways. Um, and one of the things that we found that's really striking is um, that, you know, in a way that was like, you know, with the Wired editor, right? And I hate to, i sorry to just keep returning to this anecdote, but I think it sort of, it illustrates, right? I, like, I felt like I could call the Wired editor and, you know, take my dubiously secure step of leaving my social security ne- ne- uh, number in a voicemail, which I hope has been deleted, because if it hasn't, now I'm talking about this in public. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I had a sort of workaround, right? Um, and the whole point of, of uh, many of these gig economy sort of onboarding processes, if you're a worker, is there is no workaround. You don't have an option that's, 
I don't want to upload my driver's license image to your service. Um, and then, first of all, that information often becomes uh, like can be targeted or released through breach- breaches, right? Um, Uber's big. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uber's uh, had some problems. Yes. Uh, so Uber had the the leak that you know they may have paid someone off to prevent, but that data that the breach that that was about included six hundred thousand driver's license numbers. Um, for workers. And what's really striking about that is driver's license numbers, um, you probably don't haven't had to enter them in online a lot, because they're actually usually like considered a pretty high security mechanism, right? Like, they're the kind of thing that you're using for like, um, your like for a credit card application rather than like Mm -hmm. for something else. So when you're uploading a picture of your driver's license to these platforms, and you don't have a way around it, um, like I did, um, you are like may, you as a worker may be setting yourself up for a sort of set of higher risks um, than workers in other sort of in other economic situations. So, so that's that sort of Uber, like. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But, no, go ahead. So I think the Uber example is a really great example to point to. But is there also any sort of hard data or numbers on the effects that we're seeing from this disparity in security knowledge uh, across the gig economy? It's a great question. Um, we don't have sort of like hard empirical numbers on gig workers specifically, partially because um, just people are real, really still studying these platforms. And there's some fantastic work by folks like Alex Rosenblatt and Luke Stark and Mary Gray, um, who have been sort of doing uh, qualitative work, talking to talking to workers, getting parts of their experience. Um, but I think Elizabeth can talk a little bit more specifically about the kind of what we do know about different socioeconomic status and how that relates to security behavior. Yeah, uh, thanks, Sandra. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of really great studies um, showing how folks talk about security at home. And um, one of the most kind of revelatory studies or set of studies I found was that um, there are people who get training in security and the people who do get that training by and large are nine to five traditional white collar workers, which makes sense. Of course, like a nine to five job, like you're gonna go in, you're gonna get the, hey, don't click on weird links workshop. You might even get some like fake phishing emails that are followed up by a prompt from your you know, IT team saying, hey, we saw that you clicked on this. This means you need to come in for extra training. But um, the, the aspect of that that really drove home for me the importance of this is that there are other studies showing that people who get that training at work go home and they tell their friends and family what they need to know about how to protect themselves online. Really? That's that's, that's interesting. Yeah, right? So this information travels through networks of friends and family in the domestic space. And so that means that friends and family of white-collar workers are more likely to protect themselves better online. Wow, okay. You can see that. For folks who don't have access to these white-collar environments, not only are they being cut off from sources of training, but so are all of their networks at home. Sure. And and as the gig economy grows and grows, or at least our economy shifts, you could see how that becomes a, a bigger problem. Uh, do do either of you have, I guess, solutions or do you have <laughs> things on – do you have or thoughts on what – just a reason to be optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, you know, what should Uber be doing? What can Uber even do here? Um, so I, I actually think it's it's perfect that you picked Uber there because um, they've actually, you know, despite uh, 
some pretty high profile security problems, they've actually started running occasional trainings for uh, Uber drivers to try to teach them security. And they've hired a security comms person Mm -hmm. whose job it is to start doing some of that work. And so I think, you know, when I think about reasons to be optimistic, I think my, my framing is often that, you know, as folks who work in security, and this, this was sort of the message of the talk we gave uh, back in January, as folks who work in security, we need to be taking seriously the idea that our actions have consequences for people who like we wouldn't necessarily think of as the constituency we're trying to protect. So, you know, a lot of these kinds of security models externalize this risk to like to the to the workers, right? They say, well, you're ultimately responsible for securing your own device. And I do think that's true, right? There is a responsibility, but just as Elizabeth said earlier, you know, blaming the user is not necessarily a way towards promoting change. So rather than uh, focusing on sort of how do I shift the risk elsewhere, one of the questions, and then I think companies are starting to ask now, is how do we take seriously our responsibility um, as people providing services that may may force people, force our workers to be more online, to share more information? How do we take seriously our responsibility to also help them be secure? I think that's a great point to close on. I want to thank you guys both for joining us. Before we let you go, though, uh, we want to sort of wrap up the show. Um, so I guess, can, you, our, can our listeners follow you on Twitter? Is there anything else that you'd like to plug here? Uh, Kendra, I know that you also, uh, you were talking about your side hustle a little earlier there. You offer workshops. Um, would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Let folks know where they can reach you to find out more. And also, uh, I know that uh, from 2016 to early 2017, you ran the project, the Trans Documentation Funding Project. Do you want to maybe plug that and talk a little bit about that project? Sure. So um, I'm on Twitter at, at Kendra Serra, uh, K-E-N-D-R-A-S-E-R-R-A, um, which is actually a call out to a specific artist, which just goes to show that you never let go of the art, even if you go <laughs> do other things with your life. Amen. That's good to hear. Uh-huh. Glad to hear. Um, and um, uh, people can also check out my website, which is KendraAlbert.com. Um, and yeah, I run uh, Ally Skills Workshops, which are workshops for people who are interested in learning how to sort of com- stand up as a, an ally and like combat racism and sexism, um, transphobia, homo- homophobia in their everyday lives. Um, so if that's something that interests you, absolutely check out my website. And the Trans Documentation Funding Project? Um, so yeah, so I ran a project from 2016 to 2017 where I raised, um, I matched $100,000, not personally, I do not have that kind of money, uh, but I found $100,000 of uh, kind people donated $100,000, which went towards um, funding uh, documentation, like name and gender marker changes for trans folks. Um, and to me, you know, that project represents the things I love most and the things that make me optimistic about the internet, which is like, people caring about and helping other people. Um, and I was, it was just an overwhelming, you know, amount of support for people just being like, yeah, you know, I have a hundred dollars I can pay for, or I have $120 I can pay for a passport, um, for someone. And, you know, that's, I think what keeps me in this space is that belief that like people do want to do the right thing and it's up to us to give them tools to do that. Elizabeth, um, where can employees agitated about their cybersecurity practices reach you? Uh, yes, please come to me. Um, as my advisors are beginning to lean on me about, um, I need interviews. I need to talk to people. Um, my Twitter is Watkins underscore welcome. It's a uh, it's a pun on Watkins welcome. 
Um, <laughs> I, I never knew that. And I've been like tweeting your Twitter account for a long time. Learn something new every podcast. <laughs> That's really the goal. You know, we can, we can shut it down now, guys. <laughs> anyway, I can spread puns around the world. I, I've succeeded. It's been a good day. Um, so yeah, uh, W-A-T-K-I-N-S underscore welcome. Um, if you are an employee, if you're a gig worker, if you are an employee of a gig work company, um, all of my research is anonymous. You will not be identified. I've been certified in human subjects research training. Um, so please come to me. That would be amazing. And I would be so, so grateful to, to help folks, um, figure out solutions and use the experiences of everyday people to build better systems and structures for all. Good to hear and happy to hear that you're doing so in an ethical fashion. Well, thank you both very much for joining us today. Um, and listeners, thanks for following in and listening in with us. Um, you can always hit us up at Tech Policy Grind on Twitter. And as always, please, please, pretty please, rate and review the show if you're listening to it. We need your feedback. And in fact, you know what? If any of you out there write a review or hit us up with some comments, critical or not, I think I might actually share that on the show in the future. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind and keep your ears peeled for new episodes twice a month on alternating Mondays. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks. <laughs>